Well, you're watching the perfect sunset and you're with the perfect companion. It's the perfect temperature. And then you knock over your drink on the picnic rug and get attacked by mozzies. And when you finally stand up, you put your back out. It all seemed perfect, but it was only almost perfect. If you're a Gen Xer, you'll remember the song, Isn't It Ironic? It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. And who would have thought it figured? Everything is insta-perfect, and then it's not. Life this side of heaven is not heaven. If it was, we'd have nothing to look forward to. But even worse than that, I think if we could get perfection, we'd, we'd worship creation, wouldn't we? We'd need a creator to worry about. We'd worship the perfect moments. We'd give praise to Mother Nature or to good luck or whatever it is that we might invent as an idol. And in doing so, we would turn our back on our creator, the one who created this this creation so that we might enjoy it but enjoy him as it points to him for God's people who are living under the rule of King Solomon I reckon they might have been tempted to think this is perfect finally God's people were living in God's place under God's rule they've got peace from their enemies which trust me for them is a big thing and They've just made this most amazing temple and this incredible palace. The king, what's he like? Super wise, super rich, super powerful. It all seemed perfect. But like rain on your wedding day, it all started to go a bit pear-shaped. And that's what we'll see in chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Kings as this beautifully knit jumper kind of catches on something and it starts to unravel just a little bit and a little bit more. The perfectly knit kingdom starts to unravel. Only a bit, but just enough to notice that things aren't actually perfect. Uh, We're going to take a little break from looking at 1 Kings. We're at the halfway mark. And when we come back after the holidays, we'll jump into chapter 11. And I tell you, by the time we get to 11, it's all downhill in a lot of ways. It's worth, worth listening to, honestly. We learn a lot from God. We will then see how far Solomon can go off track. But in the meantime, we are still in a perfect, well, not quite, but almost perfect situation. But all this time where it goes downhill... What it does is it shows God's people then and later that those kings were not the perfect kings. King David, pretty amazing. King Solomon, amazing and bad for different reasons. But they weren't the bee's knees. They weren't the ultimate king. And as we kind of rewind our own lives 3,000 years back and sort of go through the experience with them in 1 Kings, it's sort of like we're with them saying, oh, how good is this? How good is this? It's not so good. It's not so good. And we feel the need for Jesus as well. And that's what we're going on in this journey. Chapter 9, verse 1 begins, So Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace 
he completed everything he had planned to do. All that stuff is brought to a close. As you read it carefully, it almost feels like the end of the six days of creation. The word, therefore, completed is the same one. It's that finishing off. And it, like the creation, it was good, good, very good. You feel like we're at that point right now because the temple and the palace is complete. Here it is. The temple and the palace is complete and it's time to enjoy the blessings. And now it's all finished. Guess who comes along and says something? Verse 2. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had done before at Gibeon. You see, right now, the Lord speaks again to Solomon. But the time before that was when God said to Solomon, what do you most want? He could have said, I want to have lots of riches. But what did he ask for? Wisdom. Correct. And not only did you get wisdom, it's kind of like, well, you've asked for wisdom, we'll throw some riches and other stuff in as well. Back then, it felt really optimistic. You sort of thought, this is the great moment of the Old Testament. And so that was before we had the temple and palace built. Now we're at the end of the temple and palace and God appears again. The bookmarks. And as the Lord speaks to Solomon, you'll hear that it starts off pretty positive. But then it gets a little bit kind of, oh, I don't know, maybe a little bit pessimistic as well. Let's have a look at verse 3. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your petition. I have set this temple apart to be holy. That's what we've been singing songs about, holy, 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 right? I've set this temple apart to be holy. This place you have built where my name will be honoured forever. I will always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart. It's pretty positive, isn't it? Thanks for building the stuff. Life's good. Holy is the temple. Away we go. It's upbeat. It's positive. But before you even think about the holy bit, look where it starts. He says, I have heard your prayer and petition. The Lord actually heard Solomon's prayer. I know that when I'm talking to God, that I know that he is hearing my prayer. I know that for sure. I'm certain of it. But I've got to say, it'd be kind of cool if I was having one of those prayer times and then suddenly, booming out in my room, the Lord says, Jody, I have heard your prayers and petitions. Be like, I knew that, but that's kind of cool. <laughs> that's what's happened here to Solomon. It's like, Solomon, I've heard your prayers and your petitions. Like, thank you. And as he's hearing this time of you know, affirmation really from the Lord, you, you think about what it must have been like for Solomon at that point. I mean, you think, is there anyone on the planet who is closer to God than Solomon at that point? I mean, he talks to God and God says his name, Solomon, you Solomon. You're thinking, they are like this. You're thinking, these guys are going to be mates forever. What could possibly go wrong? That's the upbeat vibe. And, and what's more, the Lord has put his special name on the palace. And when it talks about his name, it, it's everything that encompassed by his name, by who he is. It's kind of, it's his glory, it's his heart, all stamped on this special building in answer to Solomon's prayer. It's looking so good. And he also says, 
forever. Did you see that? Forever. Forever. Your name will be honored. Forever. But the thing is that forever will continue, but the building won't. And so forever will continue even when the building doesn't. I don't want to put out spoilers, but they do knock this place down in a little while. And you're thinking, how on earth could the Lord be saying, forever my name will be on that temple? You're thinking, Lord, did you have no idea that the temple was going to be destroyed? When it was it kind of like forever, cross my fingers, or forever, that sort of thing? Forever will continue, but more of that later. Because now the Lord turns to address Solomon's faithfulness to God. He says, verse 4, As for you, Solomon, if you will follow me with integrity and godliness, as David your father did, obeying all my commands, decrees and regulations, it's kind of, if you do all of that, we'll find out in a moment what will happen. But can you see what he's asking him to do? He's saying, you're the king. You're my king. I'm expecting you to obey me. That shouldn't be too hard to get your head around. That's kind of what kings should do under the one that they rule, the, the rules them. You'd expect the king of God's people to follow the commandments of the Lord. I mean, I think we even expect our modern-day politicians to follow moral, moral compass, really, although we're often disappointed. But it's interesting that the Lord compares that king, Solomon, to David. Did you see that? Blink it and you'll miss it. You say, uh, you know, you are, you know, you, uh, you follow me with integrity and godliness as David your father did. I'm thinking, was it the same David or a different David? I mean, how can you kind of get that bit wrong, God? It, what, you, did you miss something there? Did you fall asleep with that whole Bathsheba and stuff thing? Well, it's very clear that his moral failure was huge. But David did come back to God and say, I'm deeply sorry. This whole psalm's written about it. And David, with his energy and his efforts, sought to obey the Lord. He knew when he was doing the wrong thing. But you see, for Solomon, he says, as for you, if you follow all those things, verse 5, then I will establish the throne of your dynasty over Israel forever. For I made this promise to your father David. One of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel. So even though David failed morally, David was aware of his sin and he wholeheartedly confessed it to the Lord. He was repentant and the Lord forgave him. And as the Lord overlooked that sin that he forgave, he was still able to, to promise to David that there will be a descendant of yours on this throne forever. Forever is a really long time. Sometimes it's better to sort of say, oh, look, a really, really long time, or we'll see how it goes. I mean, that's, that's a safe thing to do. One of your kids say, how long? Forever. Really? Oh, well. But God is saying forever, even though he knows what is happening. It's a little odd, really, especially when you know that God's kings are spectacular in their failure. You think David and Solomon are bad? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. And so what it must be talking about is the eternal forever rule of Jesus. We've got to keep seeing this as we hear about the Messiah, 
the promises to David and his sons. It's talking about the Messiah. Where other kings have failed, Jesus has never failed. Where other kings have turned from the Lord, Jesus has never disobeyed his father. And right here we're told that even though these kings will make a horrible mess of it, it won't wreck God's promises. Even though all these things go pear-shaped, God will keep his promise. Which leads to the next word from the Lord to Solomon, one that's perhaps just a little bit less positive. He says in verse 6, But if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the commandments and decrees I've given you, and if you serve and worship other gods then I will uproot Israel from this land that I have given them. I will reject this temple that I have made holy to honour my name. I will make Israel an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. And although this temple is impressive now, all who pass by will be appalled and gasp at horror. They'll ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to this temple? Possibly not as optimistic as it was. A little bit less buoyant, a little bit less positive. But what we've got here is a big warning from God. A big warning from God. You hope it's the kind of warning that will shock people into never breaking a rule. It's a bit like when you see a sign that says, Live wires, danger of death. It's kind of like, Oh, can't go too bad. I'll give it a go, you know, see what happens, grab onto that. You, you read that, you think, wow, that sign is shocking. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, we see the sign and we recognise it is a big warning and we say, I don't want to go anywhere near that. It's such a big warning. I hope nobody ever gets electrocuted because it's a big warning. And you hope the warning's right like that here. It's like, this. you, know, you guys turn back spectacularly and I'm not just going to... I'm actually going to wipe out the temple and chuck you guys out of this promised land. Big warning. You hope they'd hold on to that warning. And when it happens, if it happens, when it happens, it'll be a little bit like when you're driving along and you see a car accident and every part of your body wants to say, don't look, don't look, but you feel like you just need to see. You know, it's kind of like, oh, I didn't want to see that. But... And that's what they'll think about Jerusalem. The temple that was so ornately described and built just smashed. And they're going to go, oh, how could God possibly let that happen? And fair question. And here's the answer, verse 9. The answer will be, because his people abandoned the Lord their God, the God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and they worshipped other gods instead, and they bowed down to them. That is why the Lord has brought all these disasters on them. That's why. God is not passive He's not sitting back thinking, oh, I hope they don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Oh, I didn't see that happening. Oh, that's really bad. God did it and the people deserved it. Don't have a view of God that's little. A view that sort of says, well, he's back here thinking, oh, we'll see what happens. Oh, that's not so good. Well, we'll work out a plan B. Let me see what I can come up with. That is a view of God that is small and is wrong. The Lord did this. 
And the people deserved it. Because God, who saved them by grace, has now been abandoned. It's like, how could you forget Egypt? But you did. He showed them grace and love. What more could they possibly want? They've got this beautiful peace. They're wealthy and wise and powerful, and they are blessed in so many ways. And you think, why on earth would they want something more than this? Why would they want something more and better than this amazing blessing? You think, how could anyone be so stupid to be in that situation and make a dumb mistake? But the problem is, people do want more than God's blessing. People want more than God's blessing. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as good as it gets. And the snake says, I can do better. And they go, huh? All right. It's like, really? Wasn't good enough for you, really? Here they are in in Jerusalem with the most beautiful building and the peace and everything else. They're no longer scared that in the middle of the night they're going to hear a trumpet that's going to say, quickly, we're being attacked. And no longer. You think this is good? Stick with it, guys. But people want more than God's blessing. And you might think that Adam and Eve are idiots and you'd never do that same thing. Well, God says in the Bible, actually, you would. I would. The snake's saying, actually, you can get better than this. And all by nature, we say, I'd rather rule things myself rather than following the rule of God. And the punishment that came upon Adam and Eve is the kind of thing that we can expect to happen to God's people here with the temple. But there's still hope because God will be amongst his people forever. And even though they will stuff it up, there will be a forever. Anyway, after Solomon's heard this amazing word from the Lord, we see what happens in the aftermath of the building project, verses 10 and 11. It took Solomon 20 years to build the Lord's temple and his own royal palace. And at the end of that time, he gave 20 towns in the land of Galilee to King Hiram of Tyre. Hiram had previously provided all the cedar and cypress timber and gold that Solomon had requested. Remember Hiram? He was the guy who really liked the Lord and he was really on board with the whole building project. He's like, sign me up. I know I'm not one of your people, but I'll be part of the action. And sure. And so Solomon says, rightio, I'm going to give you these 20 towns from Galilee. Okay, it seems all right, really? No. Solomon's giving away some of the promised land. Really? I mean, there's the precious promised land from Dan down to Beersheba, this promised land that God promised and then delivered, and Solomon says, well, we might just sell off the back block. We'll just sell off two acres in the corner, you know, that kind of thing. And so off he goes. Why would he do that? Quite possibly it's because he kind of over-ordered the gold and stuff and he sort of realised he was in a bit of a pickle there and it's, you know, cash flow and the bank's ringing up and said, what can you do? Well, I'll see what I can do with a bit of North Galilee. Rightio, keep me in the loop. Rightio, don't, 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 yep, sure. Got out of that, okay. Is that what it's like is it a little bit like monopoly where you you mortgage a few properties so you can get some money so you can is it like that possibly and what does king hiram think about it verse 12 
But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the town Solomon had given him, he was not at all pleased with them. What kind of towns are these, my brother? He asked. So Hiram called that area Kabul, which means worthless, <laughs> as it's still known today. Uh, these towns are duds, whatever Kabul means in Aussie English. They're not a worthy payment for the debt. And I even wonder whether or not Hiram's saying, look, I'm not from Israel. I get that. But isn't there something that says that your promised land is like kind of important and you're, I'm not pleased with the way you're going because I thought more highly of you than this. But anyway, verse 14, nevertheless, Hiram paid Solomon, gave Solomon 9,000 pounds of gold. He was still on board with the program. Why has this all happened? Maybe it's because Solomon has a bit of a cash flow problem. Quite possibly. That's why he's giving away dud land, maybe here. You might have thought things were perfect. He's got a complete line of credit and will never run out of money, but it's not perfect, it's almost perfect. But anyway, Hiram's still committed to the temple project, so he gets the gold for him and so on. But it turns out that it's not only the temple and the palace that Solomon's building. Verse, We read, this is the account of the forced labour that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, the royal's palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, the cities of Hazor, Megiddo and Giza. Ah, right. He's been a very, very busy king. This is a big building project. Because he's building all that stuff in Jerusalem, he's also building cities of Hazor and Megiddo and Giza, strategic cities to the north and the south and also towards the coast. But it shows that he's stretching resources. And I think there's a problem here because he has conscripted people for a worthy cause, namely the building of the temple and the palaces. And you can understand why people might do that. You can understand or that a ruler, that the prime minister might say, I hate to do this, but I need to conscript some of our young people to send them off to war. You say, these tough times call for tough measures. Okay, we don't want to do it, but we agree with you. But if he said, I've decided also I want to conscript all of these people because we want to finish the freeway extension down south of Nara. It's like, ah, uh, not so sure about that. Yeah, and I kind of want to put on some extra rooms to the lodge up in Canberra, you know, and I'm going to get all these people and no, that doesn't really pass the pub test. I think that's what we're seeing here, that Solomon's actually overusing forced labour. This is just something a little bit on the nose with what he's doing. And verse 16 to 18, we hear of more buildings and things. And then over to verse 19, we read that he built towns as supply centres and constructed towns where his chariots and horses could be stationed. He built everything he desired in Jerusalem and Lebanon and throughout his entire realm. Sounds fairly innocent, but you know what? He's starting to act a little bit like the bad kings. Back in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, we hear a little bit about what the Egyptians were like. See if you can see the similarities with what Solomon's doing. Have a look at this. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. He appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labour. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centres for the kings. Sounds just a little bit like it, doesn't it? Just a little bit. 
And what about those chariots and horses? All the time they're saying, watch out for kings who have chariots and horses. That's bad news. Uh, As John Woodhouse notes in his commentary, he says, I am sure our writer expects us to remember what Moses had said long ago about what a king over his people must be like. And then he points us to Deuteronomy 17, which says, You're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like all the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He must not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Almost perfect. Can you see how it's just a bit like, ooh, what's going on here with Solomon? Because it just felt good and it just feels like he's... Oh, and oh, and oh. Because Solomon is starting to act more like the king of Egypt. And that's not good. (laughs) That's not good. Probably no surprise because his first wife was from Egypt, verse 24. Solomon moved his wife, Pharaoh's daughter, from the city of David to the new palace he built for her. And then he constructed the supporting terraces. We're now starting to see why marrying foreign wives is a risk to God's king because he's kind of starting to act like a king of Egypt in a way. Oh, it's just subtle. It's just a little bit like them. But as someone who perhaps was really, really well-versed in the Bible, you're kind of looking at what Solomon's doing and you're thinking, oh, oh, oh. You know what it's like? This is chapter 9 of 1 Kings. It's a bit, uh. And we see how he's... Going to the temple, verse 25. Three times each year, Solomon presented bird offerings and peace offerings on the altar he'd built for the Lord. And he also burned incense to the Lord. And so he finished the work of building the temple. Hard to tell, but it's possible that maybe we're seeing that he, he's a little bit busy to go to church. Three times a year. You know, he's built a pretty impressive building, but, you know, he can't even vote in parish council you know what I mean can't go to the AGM if he's three times a year you know what I mean it's kind of like what's the, what's the deal Solomon now I, probably he was more into it than that but can you see a bit of a vibe that it seems that he is less committed to worship as well something's just not right with Solomon and that's chapter 9 and in the midst of all of that Solomon got more and more wealthy and verse 26 he also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, a port near Elath in the land of Edom and along the shore of the Red Sea. Hiram, his mate from up north, sent experienced crews of sailors to sail the ships with Solomon's men. They sailed to Ophir and brought back to Solomon some 16 tons of gold. Uh, when it comes to wealth and power, Solomon seems perfect. Well, almost perfect. But it's not just his power and his wealth. It's his wisdom. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 10. We're going to speed up a bit now. We read in verse 1 that when the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, which brought honour to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with the hard questions. Solomon's wealth and wisdom 
And the spectacular Jerusalem temple that everybody wanted to go and see and get a selfie in front of, that was so impressive that a queen from far, far away would want to get her stuff together and visit Jerusalem and spend some time with Solomon. This is amazing. Little Jerusalem, little Israel, little nothing, and now they are not only on the map, that's the place to go, and he's the guy to speak to, even from the Queen of Sheba. And so she comes from afar, and we read in verse 2 that she arrived in Jerusalem with a large group of attendants and a great caravan of camels loaded with spices, large quantities of gold and precious jewels. And when she met with Solomon, she talked with him about everything she had on her mind. Kind of a little bit like when those foreign leaders go into the, the Oval Office. doesn't matter how powerful they are. That room is designed to intimidate. And they go there and it's like, yes, 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 President, yes, President. It's kind of like she's there. She's got all her gear and she's got all her stuff. And she came from afar bringing gifts. Listen as I read from, chapter, from, from verse 3 to 10. I'll read a slab. I don't need to say much about it, but get a feel for what is happening here. Have a look. Solomon had answers for all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the Queen of Sheba realized how very wise Solomon was and when she saw the palace that he built she was overwhelmed she was also amazed at the food on his table the organization of his officials and their splendid clothing the cupbearers the burnt offerings Solomon made at the temple of the Lord she exclaimed to the king everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true I didn't believe what was said till I arrived here and I saw it with my own eyes in fact I had not heard the half of it Your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I was told. How happy your people must be. What a privilege for your officials to stand here day after day listening to your wisdom. Praise Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who delights in you and has placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he's made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. And then she gave him 9,000 pounds of gold, great quantities of spices, precious jewels, Never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Hard to imagine that little Jerusalem is now such a wow place and that one of God's kings, he's wow beyond wow. God's king was world famous. And God has answered the prayer that David prayed to him. In Psalm 72, David prayed, Long live the king. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May the people always pray for him and bless him all day long. That's that's what David was praying for his kid, Solomon. Was Solomon God's perfect king? No. No. The cracks have started to form and they will turn into massive holes when we next come back together and look at the next bit. But right at this moment we see what the reaction of the world should be to the Lord's Messiah. This is what the reaction should be to to Jesus by everyone in the world. It's the reaction that people should have towards the one who is is, is, is ruling God's people. It's what's spoken of years later by Isaiah the prophet about the ultimate king. Chapter 60 verse 1. Arise, Jerusalem, let your light shine for all to see, for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Verse 3, all nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. Verse 6, 
The people of Sheba will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshipping the Lord. There's this kind of optimism that something similar will happen. And when might that happen? Matthew chapter 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands, far away, maybe like in Sheba, they arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we've come to worship him. And then verse 11, they entered his house and saw the child with the mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him like the queen of Sheba did. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. I think we're supposed to see a connection there. <laughs> Wise men brought gifts to the newborn king of the Jews. What were the gifts? Gold and frankincense, just like the spices from before. See, in all of this, we see that Solomon's rule was almost perfect. Almost perfect in so many ways. Until, of course, he starts to stray. And, spoiler alert, he strays. Big time. And it's so hard to watch but we will come back to church but his fame and wisdom has given us a glimpse for what god's ultimate king would be like and the almost perfect life of living under king solomon would be overshadowed completely by the truly perfect life of living under king jesus i skip most of chapter 10 just look at these two verses summarizing so King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. People from every nation came to consult him and hear the wisdom God had given him. Year after year, everyone who visited brought him gifts of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices, horses and mules. He was a great king in so many ways, but he was only almost perfect. Great but very flawed. And how the mighty have fallen and we will see him fall but in all of this friends solomon's rule gives us a thirst for the real thing king the real thing as we we read this it must give us a hunger for the authentic king i wonder if you ever occasionally sit down and look through old photos and as you're looking through them you see a place that was really special to you and you think your heart somehow just yearns to return there maybe the place where you were born and you haven't been and you grew up or maybe it was a place you went to and had a very significant effect on you and your family and your friends and you see that photo and you just have this yearning to go there and to be there again so friends i think that's kind of what the yearning should be like as we're hearing about the life of solomon it's like oh it's good but i have this yearning for something more and friends, you know what that yearning should be for? For Jesus. For when we see him, and when we see him in his fullness, it is then that we go, ah, oh, we are satisfied. And the almost perfect becomes the perfect. He is the one who followed his father with integrity and godliness, obeying all God's commands, decrees and regulations, and who will always sit on the throne of Israel. He is our king. Is he your king? Let him be your king.